living life folded in half, if you will, face down for the better part of 18 years was not just a challenging situation. It was very humbling. The children invariably questioned their parents. Mommy, what's wrong with that lady? Daddy, why is that lady walking like that? The older children moved past the pointing of fingers to smirks and giggles. And the adults looked down on her in more ways than one. It had been 18 years since she'd actually looked at someone eyeball to eyeball. This was her life, the life that she knew, a life of pain, discomfort, struggle, humiliation. In spite of all that, she was a regular down at the local church, the synagogue. And the day Jesus came to town changed her life. As you read her story in Luke chapter 13, you can almost hear her tell it. It would go something like this. I'll never forget the day that Jesus came to church. He was up front, ready to teach. I bent sideways to get a good look at him. I still remember his gentle eyes, those dark brown eyes. And then to my horror, he called me forward. My heart was racing as my feet shuffled me to the front where he looked at me and said, Woman, you are free from your weakness. He touched my back and immediately I could tell something was wonderfully different. The vertebrae that seemed to be locked, fused in place, now loosened, and I stood straight up. I stood straight up. And the very first person in 18 years that I looked at eyeball to eyeball was none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Through my tears, with great joy, I lifted my eyes and voice and praise to God And not only me, but everyone in the house. Well, not exactly everyone. The leader of the synagogue? Oh, my goodness. He went off. He went off at me. He went off at all the people in the synagogue. And he said, look, there are six days for doing work. If you want to get healed, show up on one of those days. This is not it. This is the Holy Sabbath. For a second time that day, Jesus freed me, first from my disease and this time from his accusation. And Jesus called him out, even as he called me forward. And he reminded the man, the leader, this great religious man, that he was in the regular practice on the Sabbath of untying his animals so that they could feed. And he said, why not this woman? who's not an animal. He called me a daughter of none other than Abraham. You should have seen the look of humiliation on his face. In seeing it, I realized that's probably the look that I've had for 18 years. 
But as I pan the rest of the people with their joy, I realized that was my new face. Covered with joy. So that miraculous healing long ago, that Saturday, that Sabbath in the synagogue, that takes us back to Jesus' mission, right? Remember what he said at the beginning of his ministry, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is the very miracle story that that Luke places right before Jesus' teaching on finding the narrow door. That's where we're at, week two of our series, Follow. Find the door. Specifically, Jesus says, make every effort to enter the narrow door. He's going to say in this teaching, there's a lot of people that are going to try to find it, but they can't. There's a lot of people that think they found it, that they're in, into this way of salvation with God, only to discover that they've been deceived. They're not actually in the place they think they are with God. So grab a Bible, and we'll get to Luke chapter 13. Now, if you didn't get my video message, there's a new sophisticated name RD tells me for these. They're called vlogs. I heard about blogs. Now I know about vlogs. So if you didn't get the vlog, then you didn't see my little Lombardi moment. So the Lombardi moment goes back to his infamous speech. I don't know how many times he gave it, but he walks in the locker room of the Green Bay Packers holding a football. He says, gentlemen, this is a football. So I said to the audience last night, you know, I was thinking about that speech and I was reflecting on, you know, I'm a Chicago guy, so I'm an, an old Bears fan. And I was thinking of Papa, jo- Papa Bear Hallis. And I was thinking, there is no record in history of Papa Bear Hallis ever having to give that speech. And I'm just kind of wondering why. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so um, what I said is, Door Creek, this is a Bible for Christ followers. If we want to know more about what's entailed in being a Christ follower, this is a very important book. Moses says, this is not an idle word. This word is my life. It's our life. So I want to encourage you, as you come here on the weekends, you may have it on your phone, you may have it on a tablet, that's all good, but bring a Bible. I want to encourage you to get in the practice of studying the Bible together in this room, in this place, every weekend so that we become more and more acquainted with God's word. And the goal is never to only just be in the word, but for the word to be in us and to transform us and change us. So we're in Luke chapter 13. And on the heels of this miracle, Jesus connects the miracle not just to his mission, but to his message, which is all about the kingdom of God that he says is seemingly small, at first glance, kind of like this miracle, seemingly insignificant. Okay, there is this woman who has bent over like this for 18 years, and now she stands up. Big deal for her. But in the grand scheme of things, maybe not such a big deal, at least perceived not such a big deal. He says, don't forget, it's like a mustard seed, little thing, seemingly insignificant, small thing. But man, grows to be a very big thing. Birds can actually nest in the branches of the tree, like yeast, a very small thing. And yet that very small particle, particles of yeast can 
infuse its way and change the very nature of the 60 pounds of the dough. And so he goes on then, Luke does, to record Jesus' teaching about the narrow door. Verse 32. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you and taught, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. So the question sets up the teaching. And the question is simply, Lord, how many people are going to be safe? Now, why the question? Is it because there doesn't seem to be a lot of action around Jesus? I mean, it looks like a bunch of mustard seed. So there's this magazine that church leaders read. It's called Outreach Magazine. And in it, they're always giving the latest on the fastest growing churches, the largest churches in America. Jesus' ministry would have never gotten a word of type in that kind of magazine. It was, is that why he asked? Was it because he'd been recently teaching about facing God and the judgment? Who's going to be saved from God's judgment? Who's going to make it through? Was it the fact that the religious leaders weren't really on board? And so it just seemed to be this, this little enclave here and didn't have wide support within the re religious establishment? The question comes. And the question, as you think about it, was very much not a personal question, not how can I receive eternal life. There are a lot of guys that go to Jesus asking that question. It was more theoretical, right? More hypothetical. He's looking for some kind of quantitative answer, a number, a percentage, a statistic. How many? How many? And Jesus turns it, doesn't he? We're going to see that he turns it to a very personal question. You're asking how many will be saved? I'm asking you, do you know if you will be saved? Do you know the answer? Because I'm going to talk to you about that answer. So Jesus says, you got to enter through the narrow door. And we get that. How'd you get in this room? Did anybody come in through that window? Anybody come in through the back of the cafe and burrow through that wall? Anybody drop in from the ceiling? I mean, we know all those things could be possible. We know there have been times when we've been locked out. And we figured out how to get in. But, but Jesus just said, the normal way in is through a door. And so find that door. It's a narrow door. It's a narrow door. And make every effort, make every effort to enter, not just to find it. Oh, there it is. 
No, to actually walk through that, make every effort. That word is the same word that we get the word agonize. It means to fight, to contend, to struggle. And, and we're going to find out that what Jesus is saying here is not to find that place. Because the door is not about a place. It's actually about a person. It's about Jesus. The door is not about our performance. It's about faith in Christ's perfect performance. Jesus talks about how he's the way in. John chapter 14, classic case, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, in chapter 10, verse 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So make every effort. Now, when you first hear that, we're going, okay, what does that look like? It, it, it seems like, okay, I get it. Make every effort to enter the narrow door means that I've, I've got to work really hard to meet the standard so that, in a sense, I can buy my ticket into that place. Make every effort. It sounds like things that I'm supposed to do that actually are going to earn me that way in. So I was thinking about when I was a kid and we lived less than a mile from Dyke Stadium. That's where Northwestern Wildcats regularly lost. I mean, played. <laughs> and uh, I used to go to watch the games. Saturdays was a big work day in the MyFair home. You woke up and there's a list of chores on the table. And man, there are a lot of chores. And people started parking for the game and I'm still raking leaves talking to my dad. Can't can't we just do this at the end of the season so I can go play and go to the game? And sometimes I made it. And there is this, it, it doesn't exist now, but when I was a kid, you could climb a tree just outside the north end zone and watch the game for free. Are you kidding me? That was great. But you know what? I wanted to be in. I wanted to see it in the stands. I wanted to get closer. So we didn't, we didn't get the allowance deal growing up. And so... I figured out I could sell programs. And the deal with selling programs is you sold programs, you know, the first, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes down by the gates. And then after that, you, you'd earn your ticket in to watch the game. So I, I, would, I would earn my way to that seat. And there's a lot of people that think about making every effort to enter. I get it, Jesus. I am doing the work. I'm working the plan. And I know it's all about my performance. Jesus says, actually, it's not. Because in verse 25 and verse 27, his answer to those who want to get in is not, oh, guys, didn't you understand? I've got a pretty high bar. You, you can't come in because you haven't done enough. And what, 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 is, what is the repeated phrase? I don't, verse 25, verse 27, what does it say? I don't know. I don't know. 
I, I, I don't have a relationship with you. They're going, no, 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 no. Yes, we do have a, let me, let us remind you. Remember? Like, we heard you teach in our streets. We were there. We know you, Jesus. We, in fact, there was a big barbecue in town, and you were at one picnic table, and we, were at the, we, were, we ate with you. He says, I, I, don't, I don't know you. I don't know you. Matthew 7, verse 21, same teaching. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I mean, that is a serious portfolio. Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. It's never you didn't do enough. You fell short. Actually, you thought there was just a little bit more good in your life than bad. Now, sorry, there was a little more bad in your life than good. You should have just worked a little. Never, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So Jesus says, only those who do the will of my Father. So what is the will of his Father? He makes that clear in John chapter 6. It's all about faith, believing in Christ. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So making every effort has to do with trusting in God's Son, the one who makes a way, the one who, <clears throat> when he died on the cross, remember what happened? The moment he died, the Gospels tell us the curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies, the very place where God's presence rested in the Holy of Holies, that curtain was split from top to bottom. The writer of Hebrews says, we enter through a new curtain, and that curtain is none other than Jesus Christ. His sacrificed body rose from the dead for us. That's the way in. We make every effort to believe, to trust. So believing that God is our Savior is very different than making every effort to be my personal Savior, that I'm going to do the work. I'm trusting in Christ's good work on the cross, not in my portfolio, <clears throat> not in my resume of good works. That's what the woman did. Hers was a life of believing. It was very simple. Remember one of the things we talk about a lot is faith is taking God at his word. It's obeying what he commands. It's believing what he's promised. And so you got this little mini window of her faith. Jesus calls, and she takes Jesus at his word and goes forward. And she doesn't do anything, does she, to receive? Jesus doesn't say, all right, here's the deal. Come back next week. Man, put in a good week. One good week. And, man, I can heal you. Just do the work this week, come back, and I'm promising you, you're going to be healed of this weakness. No, Jesus extends his gracious power. It's a free gift that she receives, not on the basis of anything she's done. It's clear teaching. Enter the narrow door, 
this relationship with God through faith in the Son of God. That's the way in. Are you in? You're not if you haven't entered through the narrow door. You're not if your faith isn't wholly on the Son of God. So there's some warnings that go along with the teaching. The first is, entry is not automatic. You don't just need to find the door and you step on the magic carpet and voila, the door's open. That is so cool. I love those automatic doors. No, it's not an automatic door. And yes, the door is open for everyone, but it's not open forever. Today, while we draw breath, the door is open. The day upon which we breathe our last, it no longer is. Today, Christ in his patience is waiting for people to come to faith. The door's open. The day Christ comes back, we don't know when that is, Jesus says. The door will be shut. He's the owner of the house. There's a third warning. Not entering the narrow door today has huge consequences for our life tomorrow and in the future. You, you say, I don't, I don't want to go through the narrow door. The, the synagogue leader, you know, I mean, what a, what a construct. He, he's the guy who goes, I, I don't need that. In fact, he, he doesn't even see the power of God's grace in any way that he celebrates it. He's opposed to it. There, there's nothing longing in him where he says, I, I need that. There's things bent in my life, crooked in my life. No, no, no. He is living the straight and narrow way because he is fastidiously keeping the law as best as he can and calling out to all those who aren't. Hey, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? He doesn't understand that his hardening to grace his own denial of his need of grace is excluding him from that experience. So everybody in the story is having a party. Except for who? The religious guy who doesn't think he needs it. So you go through life going, hey, that's good. Hey, that narrow door thing, that Jesus thing, if that's working for you, good on you. That's great, girl. You go. I don't need that. I don't need this Jesus. I don't need this narrow door. I, I'm working it out, and it's working out. I'm good with that. Here's the plain teaching in the Bible. God doesn't put us in a full Nelson and say, until you cry, uncle. He says, hey, you have the freedom to choose. You have the freedom to choose. But if you choose to not go through that narrow door, then you need to know the choices you make here in this life to do life on your own without me. I'm going to let you do that forever. And just so you're clear, it isn't a party. It's a place of weeping. It's a place of torment, gnashing of teeth. How we think, what we choose to go through that door or not, isn't just about today. Jesus says, warning, it has consequences for our eternal destiny. And then the fourth warning, and I think it's the scariest one for those of us in church this morning, is this. Hanging out with religious people in religious places, grabbing the religious vocabulary, doing religious 
things can be a very dangerous place because it can lead us to assume a relationship, presume a relationship with God on the basis of those things that actually aren't the stuff of having a relationship with God. Do you hear what I'm saying? We're in a precarious place. I'm actually in a precarious place where it can get all clear in my mind, hey, I'm all good with God. I've got a relationship with God because of the things I do for God. You're going to, yeah, and I dropped, you know, I, I dropped an envelope in on the way. I serve around here. I'm serving in community. And, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But if that's the basis, if that's the basis, we're deceived. We're in danger of hearing God say to us, a relationship, is, it's not formed on the basis of what you do. You couldn't do enough to make up for how you've destroyed this relationship. That's why Jesus had to die. It's huge. It's huge. So the religious leaders have had enough with Jesus. Look at verse 31. They, they want to get rid of him. And don't, don't misread this in any way to think, oh, well, these, these guys have a soft spot for Jesus. Everything we know about these religious leaders is there is no soft spot. They want nothing of it. Jesus is blowing up their whole construct, their whole place of authority, and they want to take him out. And so they, they, they've got a new tack. At the same time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox... I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely, no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus is helping us understand for the first time or reminding us again, why is Jesus the narrow door? Why is Jesus the way in? Why is he the way, the truth, the life? Why is it that no one can get to the Father except through him? Because he perfectly obeyed the Father's will, knowing he would lead him not outside Jerusalem, but to Jerusalem where he would die on a Roman cross. And there is nothing, not the threats, not the power, not the authority of Herod, not the opposition of religious leaders. There is nothing that will detract and distract him from his mission. He lived a perfect life of obedience that allows him to be the perfect sacrifice. That's why he's the narrow door. Because he did what nobody else has ever done. Perfectly loved God the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. He's unique in his life of perfect obedience to the Father. And by the way, Jesus knew full well he was going to Jerusalem to die. He says it the first time back in chapter 9, verse 22. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. And he said... The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. 
This, this, what happened to Jesus is not, oh, my word, it, it, he, was, he was riding high on the donkey, and everybody was recognizing him as the coming Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us. You are the Christ. And then, and then at, at some twist of fate, he got caught in the cogs of, of the religious establishment and the Roman powers, and all of a sudden, he's taken out. No. His plan was to be taken out that you and I might be brought in. Jesus is a narrow door because he perfectly obeyed the Father's will, knowing it would lead him even to a cross. That's the agony, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's any way, if there's any way that you could come up with plan B, take this cup away from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. That's Jesus. There's another point that we see in verses 34 and 35. His perfect love for us. Even the people who rejected him. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you are unwilling. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's got a great love, not just for a city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city represents the people of God. The people of God who've done what? They've rejected God, his messengers. They've killed him. They've stoned him. They're going to do the very same thing to him. He already knows about the cries that move from Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify him. Crucify him. He knows that's coming. He knows these are the very people who will take his life. And he says, man, my heart for you is I want to do this. Like a hen protecting her chicks under her wings. It is said that there have been many a fire where the mother hen doesn't abandon the chicks. But she takes them under her wings and spares their lives even by sacrificing her own life. The farmer comes in, sees the hen, and she's, she's covered in embers, blackened by the fires. And the surprise of the farmer is to push that hen away and see chicks scurrying from under the wings. But Jesus is the narrow way because he went to the cross for people like me, for people like you, who didn't deserve it, who didn't desire it. What a great God. What a great Savior. So I wonder if you found the narrow door. I wonder if by faith in Christ you've made your way through it. Alistair Begg <clears throat> Serves a church out in Ohio. He's a great Scotsman. Loved to hear Alistair preach. And he's speaking in Cambridge, Mass, over at Harvard. And uh, he was feeling pretty intimidated by it all. Alistair's habit is, before he gives a message, he's in some coffee shop, some restaurant, getting breakfast and kind of going through things. And so he's right there at the restaurant, right next to Harvard Yard. 
And he's feeling really small. It's a pretty intimidating place, Harvard. He's feeling very insignificant. He's feeling like, oh man, this gospel message about Jesus being the son of God and it's faith through him that's the way in, it's feeling like foolishness in this concept, in this, in this construct here, in this place. But he's encouraged as he looks across the restaurant and he sees this young Asian student reading her Bible. And he says to her, hey, I, I notice you're reading a Bible. Are you Christ follower? And with a big smile on her face, she replies, yes, I am. Here's her reply. He said, I've never heard it before. I have found the narrow way. I found the narrow way. Came from Korea, the only Christian in her family. She grew up surrounded by a pantheon of gods. I have found the narrow way. Have you? Let me ask an honest question. Are you offended by this teaching? Let me encourage you. If you are, you're better understanding Jesus than most people. If you're offended by this teaching, you're beginning to understand what Jesus is saying. And let me suggest to you that the narrow way is not always an offensive thing in your life, just so that you might consider it. Every time you land in a plane, you realize there's a narrow way below. It's a little strip of concrete. And with all that you have, you are hoping that your pilot finds the narrow way, right? Because we know if the pilot doesn't find the narrow way, that's not a good thing, is it? This is not a good thing. Have you found the narrow way? Do you know what it means to make every effort? Do you understand it's not about your good works? Do you understand that? It's not about amassing a resume or portfolio of religious activity that God would find acceptable. Titus 3.5, I go back to this verse all the time because it's so clear. Look at it again. 4 and 5. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. So it's describing Jesus. The kindness and love of God. When he appeared. He saved us on what basis? Not because of righteous things we had done. Not because of our good works. But because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Spirit. And so, do you know what it means? What it doesn't mean, what it means. Do you understand, Christ follower, that this isn't just the stuff of the door where you go, I get it, it's the way in, and that's how I, I got on with Jesus and a relationship with God. It's through faith. But now I'm working really hard to stay in that good place. And when I'm not doing the work, I feel guilty. And if you think that's just a Catholic thing, it's a Protestant thing. I feel guilty. This, this whole teaching of making every effort to enter the narrow door is, that's every new day. How are you going to live this day? And it's really interesting that this word, 
make every effort. It's the same word that Paul uses to describe his life of faith. And at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. So the every effort is this fight of trusting, of turning away to, from anything and anyone that I would put my confidence in to gain me happiness, to gain me peace, to gain me security for whatever it is I need today. I'm, I'm in this fight. It's this good fight of faith where I'm trusting Christ, trusting Christ. It's not just for the novice coming in. It's not just for the would-be Christ follower. It is for you and me every day. Make every effort, make every effort to enter this day, my life, my thinking, all that I need in life through Christ, through Christ. The one who says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. A third question, is it possible that you're assuming a relationship with God that actually God doesn't recognize? That you would be just like those in the story, but no, no, we, we do. We're good, God. Because remember, I'm, I've been hanging around with you and your people. We're good. A relationship. A relationship. Are you assuming a relationship with God on the basis of going to church, of giving, serving? Maybe on the basis of, well, it's kind of this proxy thing because I'm friends with people who are friends with God, and so I'm friends with God because they're friends with God. You got this proxy kind of idea of faith, relationship. The, the teaching is simply this. If you and I haven't gone through the narrow door, we don't have a relationship with God. Because we can't repair the relationship that we've blown up by trying to do life without God. If we haven't gone through the narrow door, then we're not in a good place. We're actually not where we need to be and where we want to be. We're chasing down these shortcuts that promise all the good things in life. But Jesus says those are dead ends. Those are wide paths that are easy to get onto, but they're dead ends. They actually lead not to your well-being and welfare, but to your destruction. And what a wild thought. What a wild thought that the God of the universe, who knows you and me better than Anybody in our lives who knows all the secrets, all the things, we shake our heads and go, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. He knows all of that. And he wants a relationship with you. The God of the universe cares about you and sent his son to die to make that possible. Let's pray. Lord, you say to those who have received this gift of your grace, powerful grace, grace that can take crooked things and bent over things and make them straight. Those who receive this grace, believing in your son's name, you give them the right to be called and become your children. 
And Lord, would you take the things that right now remind us that we need your power, Lord Jesus, to remind us that we need you? Would you grant faith even as we hear your word? Would you strengthen faith in our lives that we wouldn't be deceived today or any day in the future into thinking we're in a place where we're not? Thanks for loving us. Thanks for not being distracted, but going right to the cross. I pray that you'd help people this day find and walk through that narrow door. And with that, full joy. In Jesus' name, amen.